Hey everybody, this is Richard Deitch and welcome to the Sports Media Podcast. My producer as always is Lou Pellegrino. Our guest this week is Jamel Hill, who um, really would be no stranger to this podcast given that um, she has been the topic of many discussions as part of the Sports Media Roundtables that I do. She's also been a guest a number of times on my old Sports Media Podcast at Sports Illustrated. Jamel Hill worked at ESPN for 12 years before leaving the company last month. As part of a buyout with ESPN, she will now work for The Atlantic and also has started a production company with her longtime friend, Kelly Carter, and they are looking at developmental deals. Jamel Hill, welcome to the Sports Media Podcast. Well, it is a pleasure to be here, and, you know, I'm sorry that so many hearts were broken that I was not your new colleague at The Athletic. (laughs) Yeah, Jamel Hill is not going to The Athletic, so all the people who are canceling their subscriptions... You know, you're, it's okay. You you can come back. You, you, it's safe for you to uh, to read. Yeah, that was actually a, a rather hilarious day to read on Twitter. All the people who were canceling their scripts, subscriptions to the Athletic when you were heading to the Atlantic, which uh, uh, was was you know, maybe not amusing for you, but certainly at least an amusing thing to read. Um, oh, all right, oh, go ahead, Jamal. Definitely amusing for me, though. I just felt bad for you guys because let. I like and respect so many of you all over there. Otherwise, I would have led the campaign for to cancel subscriptions at a place I don't even work. <laughs> Jamel, as you like to say, the paychecks are still coming Friday. I think we're still in business, so but I appreciate uh, I appreciate that uh, all the same. Um, all right, there's a lot to get to, Jamel. So let's start here. At what point did you know you were leaving ESPN, and if you could elaborate on why? you knew that was the moment you were going to leave? Well, um, you know, I I don't know if it was just one moment. I think it was a series of moments, uh, to be honest. Um, People think that uh, this was all because of the Trump stuff, and it really wasn't all about that. I mean, that certainly played a factor, but it wasn't as significant as I think people on the outside like to make it seem. It started not necessarily leaving ESPN, but... Uh, to rewind all the way back and do yet another autopsy of the um, of the six, um, you know, I knew a few months in that that was not going to work, and that was long before any of this Trump stuff ever happened. Um, you know, um, people are no stranger to or aware of. We had a lot of creative difficulties on the six and trying to find a comfortable balance between who Mike and I were as his and hers and who Sports Center needs to be. And it was a painful process. And, um, you know, I, our good friends were very honest with each other. We're very self-aware. And I told him early on that I just really didn't think that this was something we were going to be built for for the long term. And by long term, I meant, you know, that we would be able to sit in these desks for years and um, maybe as some others have in that position or just as sports center anchors overall. I truly felt like once the time was over, um, we, they would move on, we would move on and just say, Hey, we all tried. Um, that process was obviously sped up a little bit by a change in leadership as in, um, you know, uh, Rob King who brought us into sports center was no longer in charge of it. And Williamson was, and so the direction of the show started to change. Norby had his own vision for how you wanted to do sports center. It differed from a, we wanted to do sports center. And frankly, the whole reason we signed on to do Center. So while there was some mutual respect there, 
I think, um, at least for me personally, since I was the one who pulled the trigger first, I just wasn't interested in doing that kind of television. And that's no knock on him or ESPN or SportsCenter. I just wasn't that interested in it. Um, so at any rate, as the SportsCenter uh, experiment was coming to a close, and as I looked forward to uh, undefeated in a very meaningful and thoughtful way, I have a, a huge amount of respect for Kevin Merida. Um, obviously, my best friend, Kelly Carter, is a senior writer there. Adore Justin Tinsley and Mark Spears. I've known um, many of their staff writers for years. Um, and so that felt like such a natural fit that I was really juiced about it. And being able to live in, you know, D.C. and to work for the undefeated and help it further entrench itself in the culture of ESPN were all very exciting projects um, that I wanted to be a part of. Things were a little trickier on the television side. Um, you know, I could pretty much cherry pick any TV that I wanted to do. There were no limitations there. And I chose to stick it to doing TV with the shows and the people and the producers that I respect and like um, the type of television that I want to do. Uh, but as I continued to think about it, you know, usually when I've been at ESPN for as long as I had, I always knew a next step. You know, when I was a writer and I started to do more commentary, I knew that, yeah, you know what? It's probably the next step is transitioning into a full-time television role. Um, you know, when Mike and I were doing uh, uh, the podcast, um, it was, okay, um, the next step, maybe we can turn this one day into a radio show or a TV show, which kind of happened, uh, which did happen, rather. Uh, when we were doing His and Hers, we were thinking about, okay, well, uh, this would be great. Uh, you know, we've, we've done well here at noon on ESPN. It would be great if we could get one of those, you know, premium slots on E1 um, and try to take the further and then the sports center opportunity came up and it's like wow never saw this coming but based off what we've been told this seems like a logical next step i didn't know what the next step was at espn meaning there was nothing there that i really wanted to do um i've done everything already and well sure you know you could get creative and come up with things and certainly there were some options that were presented to me to stay but uh those options kind of sounded like what i had already done as much as I love the people that I possibly get to do it with. And um, there was just no new territory to cross. I mean, there was a lot of great challenges. Um, I certainly could have dove in deeper to doing the undefeated, but there was just nothing really else. And even that would be in its kind of incubator and infant stage. Uh, and, you know, frankly, as they had a lot of other things that they had to prioritize at ESPN, I wasn't exactly sure how they would prioritize some of the things that I wanted to do at the undefeated. Again, not to say that the undefeated isn't a priority, but there's always some other fire or something else that has to be done at ESPN that's usually going to be in front of you. It's just the way things work there. So looking at all that, at the career of what I've, and what I'd already done to me, the next logical step was to leave. And so all of this was a thought process for, I don't know, maybe a, a year, year and a half. I mean, again, it was a collection of one, of little moments. It was never one big thing. So that when finally, um, you know, that option was on the table, I, it just like the right choice. All right. I want to, eventually, I want to get back to the undefeated because I want to ask you if you think it's going to survive long term. But there's a lot that you just sort of brought in here. So let's take a couple of them. 
when um when you decide that you want to leave because I, I don't think people who listen to this will know how it happens how do you do it do you go to Jimmy Pitaro? do you go to Connor Shell do you have your agent call them how, what is the process of somebody who wants to leave ESPN who has a contract how does that happen I think for everybody it's different um timing is everything and so um this was right after the ESPYs. We had a meeting on, on the books, um, you know, for a while. And I, you know, given the length of time that was left left on my contract, I think we were all uh, mutually interested in figuring out what the remaining years on my contract looked like, as in, what would I be doing, and and that sort of thing. So um, w- that meeting, we went into it in the spirit of that, and I had every, you know, there's no reason to have believed otherwise. And, you know, um, what came out of it as we kind of had our options was this was an option that was, um, you know, um, that sort of threw out there is that my whole, I think I said the words I said to Connor and and Jimmy exactly um, were, you know, I'm a, again, I'm a very self person and I'm, I'm honest, very brutally honest, even with myself. And what I asked them is, or said to them was, if our relationship has reached the, the point of no return, it's okay to say that. Okay. Like that's, you know, I don't see it as an indictment of me or my work that I've done or even how you personally feel about me. But I'm not, I know, you know, what the climate is like and not necessarily inside of ESPN, but um, I know how this company is being perceived. I know that I had a, a role, some would say a significant role, in the ESPN is too political narrative, and that guys have been trying to get from up out of from up under that for you know months now. I mean, that even back with uh, you know when Skipper was there. So I realized this, and that you know I told them the one thing that was frustrating for me being there is it seemed like every time I wanted to do something that there was an email chain involved and that stuff inside the company, not outside. I'm certainly going to be one whenever I want to do anything outside the company, but I was starting to feel toxic to be honest. And I didn't like that feeling. I felt like, and these, you know, again, I had never felt like the respect wasn't there or that they didn't like me or, you know, didn't value my work, but it just felt like every time I was on something, Every time that I wanted to something that it was like, let us see if we can get this clear. Let us see if it's okay to use you in this way. And that's not a good feeling to have. And, you know, Connor told me, and I believe him, he was like, I've never told anybody they have to do that. And frankly, he was a little confused as to why that happened. It was just this sense and this feeling, you know, um, that we got to kind of manage her a little bit differently. And I don't want to be managed. So, um, with, and I, you know, I don't want to put people, uh, you know, I don't want to make them uncomfortable or feel like, you know, that I'm not, um, that there's going to be this wave of negativity that comes with me. And, um, and not, again, not internally, not (laughs) from people, but, you know, every time I said, every time I belched, it wound up on brass, (laughs) you know, so, I realized that there was a different level of scrutiny and attention being paid to everything that I say. And I think a lot of people realize that too. And so 
Um, I tried to stay, stay in safe spaces, so to speak, um, you know, my remaining months there. And that's not a good feeling to have. I can't operate in that world. So right. it just felt like the relationship had run its course. Yeah, what an exhausting place to be. Am I correct, Jamel, in that there were people at ESPN who who wanted to stay, who wanted you to stay, or at least wanted to make um, a place for you? Specifically, Eric Rideholm, who um, has the uh, highly questionable shows around the horn. Pardon, pardon the interruption. So there's, a, so he's sort of maybe leading a group that wants to convince you to stick around. And then there are clearly people in management who are like, if she stays here. She's emblematic of this narrative, uh, which is a lot of bullshit, but this narrative that the ESPN is too political. All they do is talk about politics. We got to get her out of here. Is that a fair representation of sort of the the tool manage the two kind of dueling management thoughts at ESPN? Um, it's not the complete picture. Certainly, Eric wanted to work with me, and I wanted to work with him. And if you notice, um, in my remaining time, that I pretty much spent 80% of the time doing his shows. Um, around the horn, highly questionable. I have great respect for him. I have great respect for Dan Levitar. Um, and of course, you know, as I mentioned, you know, I did a lot of Sports Nation because of obviously my friendship with Carrie. I've known that producer group for a while. Um, so it was fun, you know, to do TV with my friends, you know. And so, um, yeah, Eric was definitely a champion, an advocate. He was in my corner. But um, it wasn't just, you know, him. I mean, I got every indication that Jimmy, Connor, Kevin Merida, Rob King, they all supported me staying, and they all were more than invested and, you know, um, wanted to sort of work something out. Um, and uh, I, you know, so I didn't feel as if it was, um, you know, if I was calling, causing some kind of divisive among management, the people that matter wanted me to stay. That's all I know. I can't speak for anybody else. <laughs> and, um, you know, and I think why when I know people tend to call bullshit whenever you hear amical parting, it really was that because they, you know, made an effort to, to me. They, you know, offered me some options, which I certainly took at face value. And it just so happens I chose another direction because I thought it was Frankly, best for both of us. You um you mentioned the six. Your show with Michael Smith at six PM in the end, um, let's be blunt, was not a viewership hit. Um it wasn't a mega bust per se, but it, it didn't um um you know, whatever ESPN sort of plans for that show were, at least at the beginning, um it it didn't exist at the end and a lot of that as you had to as you sort of mentioned before, had to do with creative differences. Um in terms of new management, Norby Williamson coming in. When you look at this now from like 10,000 feet, why didn't that show work? Or maybe more specifically, why didn't that show work as, um, as maybe a sort of bringing in more viewers? Well, um, I think it was a lot of things. It wasn't just one or two. I mean, I could probably write at this point a dissertation on why it didn't work, <laughs> but I can start back at the, at the very beginning. And I think the decision to call it sports center was a mistake. And, um, you know, uh, it was something Mike and I lobbied for early. I understood their position, which was, as you know, Bob King told us explicitly, <laughs> explicitly that uh, Sports Center is what keeps the lights on around here. 
And, you know, they obviously don't want to use that brand advertising money that comes with it. Completely get that. And from a business standpoint, you don't want to do that. But yet putting that title on it kind of started us behind because, you know, it, it, it was funny because if you recall, when Fox, when FS1 started, you know, their venture and, and people, they ran with the idea, put that narrative out there. And I believe it was my former boss, Jamie Horowitz, who was kind of at the lead of this, that Sports Center is dead. That's what that's that was FS1's drum they were banging to try to <laughs> you know needle us or needle ESPN at that time. And people, I think, even though the narrative was started from a network and a entity that was so much lower than us, people actually started to believe that. And there was you know obviously some changes made, and suddenly it went to. A driven sports centers and trying to have more personality on sports center in general and to try to use some of the juice that was created from shows like first take and ours and might like use some of what was created on ESPN too, highly questionable and sports nation and try to infuse a little bit of that juice into sports. And so we were an evolution of that, of like even going harder and saying, you know what, we're living in a time where people can get their highlights anywhere you're talking about a tricky time at six o'clock where there's nothing new to show you. All right. The night from the night of action has not happened. And all you got is the previous night, which everybody's seen. But what I found um, is that the people we run into on the streets, they just because we've trained, I mean, ESPN has trained viewers to think of sports center in a very productive and, um, but yet narrow way. I mean, that's how people, people, when you say sports center highlights, very first their mouth, right? We were not going to be a highlight driven show. The sports, sports center at six, even under Lindsay was never highlight driven. Okay. Because it just can't be at six. So we wanted off the sports center label because we knew that we weren't going to be giving people that. And we thought it'd be much easier for them to die if they knew what they were getting. So that was step one. So step one was not being the name, uh, is not wanting that name. Step two was the the of our staff was largely sports center based producers. And the type of TV Mike and I kind of wanted to do, you know, both of us kind of were groomed under the ride home tree of things. We both started doing around the horn. We started in the, in the commentary, that side of television. So when it came to producing um, conversations, we knew what that looked like and what it looked like when it was magic. We had just done it on his and hers. And so a lot of the producers we were working with were people who would just produce SportsCenter. And that is not a knock on them, but that's what they were accustomed to. And so the vision was a little uh, on different pages from the beginning. Um, there were certain producers that we wanted that we didn't get um, because you know, understandably so in Bristol and in the sports center unit, they trust their own. Well, okay. Um, but these are not necessarily producers we know all that well or have a relationship with. So we were kind of, um, they were the sports center producers. Some of them we inherited. They were trying to figure out what the show was and um, we knew what we thought it should be. They knew what they thought Sports Center was because that's what they had only done. So that was, um, you know, another kind of wrinkle we had to get through. 
And then it was just how we came on air. Um, it was Russ. Uh, we had to do his and hers through the end of the year, essentially. Um, we got a month to prep. And um, that month, we I think we may have had three or four rehearsals tops. By the time we hit air the day after the Super Bowl, we had no idea what the show was. No idea. Um, of like what the show would be that day, but we didn't have a vision at all. Um, and so, yeah, that to me is like a bad starting point. So all of our evolution had to take place on air in front of everybody. And as anybody in TV knows, when you start a show, you never get a second chance to make a first impression. And so um, we started off trying to do things kind of his and hersy. That doesn't quite work for sports. We figured that out pretty quickly when the summer came. We were like, this show needs to be faster paced. We need to add some other elements, more video. Like, we were already on this track of how to do things. And unfortunately, um, there was a couple of narratives that we had to fight early on. One was obviously the layoffs happened very early when we were on SportsCenter. And all of a sudden, Mike and I became the poster children for why these layoffs happened because you have two overpaid black people on TV at six o'clock and they're sucking up all the resources and putting these fine journalists out of work. Didn't take long for us to become attached to that narrative. I don't know how, but some folks did. Um, so then it was that. Then it was the people banging the political drum. Um, and it, you know, it's interesting that, um, you know, that ESPN is being, you know, uh, with this narrative because it, it didn't necessarily start with us, but we were a big part of that. And that started long before Trump is that people um, and, and look, I, I'm not saying that, you know, race had anything to do or race was the reason that we weren't as successful. But certainly um, that that political narrative, it was funny how that was only attached mostly largely to the people of color and women at the work. That's who got that. And it was just, so you see two people on TV and we got to be political. Like, where did that come from? <laughs> we weren't talking about immigration or healthcare or any of these subjects. And I can tell you, Richard, as God is my witness, the number of times that producers wanted us to talk about Colin Kaepernick, the number of times we actually did is a vast margin. Every time a quarterback was signed, they wanted us to talk about Colin Kaepernick. Mike and I repeatedly said, oh, we may have discussed Colin Kaepernick, I don't know, maybe two or three times, tops. Never, like, it was never a, a go-to subject for us. I mean, we pretty much had, we had done a podcast on it. We talked about it at length on his and hers. We didn't feel the need to keep in that drum. Everything we wanted to say, we already said. So, you know, I, I just thought that was unfair to attach to us. So you have all those narratives building as kind of get a show right in real time and then leadership changes. And suddenly we're feeling like the franchise quarterback who just saw their GM and coach fired. <laughs> and it's like, oh, snap, well, we, got a, we got a new system. All right, we thought we were running the read option. Now y'all want to see pro style. It's like, eh, can we meet in the middle? And you know, we tried to meet in the middle, and ultimately, it felt like they wanted their traditional sports center back. I didn't get into this to do traditional sports center. The one thing I never wanted to do when I got to ESPN was be a sports center anchor. The only reason I took the SC6 was because, um, you know, 
uh, it was an opportunity to do sports center my way and in a different way, or I should say our way. And that didn't happen. There was just a long list, you know, of reasons. We didn't get the chance or the opportunity um, to figure it out. Um, and we didn't get the time to really craft out what the show should be. I mean, SVP got months to get his show right in terms of like before they even hit air, get up at a long time. And I empathize with them greatly when their narrative was written before they even started. I was like, know what that's like. <laughs> and so it was, um, it was a lot of things that didn't go. Like, I'm not here to make excuses. Um, you know, the ratings were not what we would have hoped, but this idea that we were a ratings disaster, I fully reject because of being a disaster is having a half a million people on most days watch your show. I think most people would take that. Yeah. I mean, the, it's the, the idea that it was a disaster is not true, but you know, the reality is it was not a viewership success. You guys know that. And you, you just sort of elaborated the reasons why, um, again, there's a lot there. We can do an entire, probably, you know, miniseries on SC6. I do want to ask you, though, because within the context of everything that's going on here is John Skipper. And John Skipper is somebody who um, believed in you, believed in diversity, giving more women voice at ESPN, people of color. Um, he eventually um, he eventually resigns from ESPN, admits uh, drug usage, says he resigned because he was being blackmailed by people based on that drug usage, um, you know, incredibly reckless behavior by a CEO. I'm wondering, uh, Jamel, sort of two things. One, how much is Skipper involved as as SC6 is closing, you're getting called out by the White House, and he has obviously things going on in his life away from being the CEO. And then I sort of want to follow up how things have changed post Skipper, but can you just give me a sense of how, how active is Skipper involved in what is going on with you in the latter months of SC six and when things are really getting heated with the white house? Uh, he was very involved. Um, you know, he was involved from the beginning in, in terms of even the decision, um, for Mike and I to, to be on the 6 PM sports center. He thought it was a great idea and he was looking at us to kind of be change agents and to, um, you know, really to take an even bolder approach as they tried to evolve Sports Center into a more, you know, modern product, if you will. Um, so he, yeah, he had a lot to, to do with it. Um, and it was his decision to to put Norby in charge um, of Sports Center. That was his decision. So, because, uh, you know, he felt like he needed to give us, um, you know, more support. Uh, and it was, I'll be frank, a bit of a curious decision because, um, you know, while we felt like we had enough support, but I guess given, you know, sort of Norby's view about how he felt sports center should be, I just would have loved to know, you know, John, how he saw that playing out. Um, so at any rate, uh, it was his decision to do that. And then when all the stuff went down with Trump, you know, Skipper and I had a very, um, emotional conversation, <laughs> okay, uh, to say the least. Uh, he was angry, and I was more upset just because, you know, my whole, my career at ESPN, I mean, he's played a big hand in. You know, he's, you know, believed in me, supported me, had an open door with me. Um, you know, I consider us 
you know, basically friends, you know? And so uh, I just felt like I kind of, you know, let him down. Um, And it's something hard to balance when you feel like you're right about what you're saying, but at the same time you realize the consequences of that aren't great for people you respect. It it can be tough, and it was tough on me. And and I wrote about this that the first time in my professional career that I ever cried in a meeting, and I wasn't crying because, you know, Skipper was upset and angry. I was crying because of what I knew that this was about to become. Um, And, you know, ESPN was already caught up in a narrative that I thought was just so dumb about, you know, it being a political company. I felt like I'd served up a fastball on the tray for all the people who say that. And it put him in a bad position, obviously. It put the company in a bad position. It put my show in a bad position and my co-host in a bad position. So there was a lot of collateral damage that I was dealing with um, in that emotion. And so, um, you know, Skipper was upset. Um, and I think he, you know, may have said a few things he didn't necessarily mean. Not, nothing derogatory. So I don't want people to get, you know, to sensationalize that. Um, and... You know, what was funny is that he had breakfast the day before I came back off my suspension, and it was great. I mean, um, you know, we were laughing and joking, you know, we hugged each other, and we were both committed to just moving forward. And I told him then, and he actually, you know, he apologized. I told him the only, I had no animosity. I understood why I was suspended. I did, um, you know, violate the policy when I you know, called out Donald Trump. I know I did. It's fine. Uh, but the only disappointment in that time was that when the White House decided to attack and when Trump singled me out, I was disappointed ESPN did not respond. Exactly. And, uh, and he apologized for that. So, um, and, you know, said he, he probably should have in, in hindsight. And in fact, he knew he should. And so I was like, okay, well, you know, let's move forward and, and try to make this show as good as, you know, we possibly can, despite, you know, being under pretty tough scrutiny and, and facing um, some challenges. So uh, for things to then kind of, uh, you know, out of nowhere for him to resign, you know, just weeks later, it was, I mean, I was blindsided. Everybody else was, you know, usually when something like that happens, especially given, you know, what it was over, um, there are whispers, there are, you know, stories that people tell, urban legends. There was nothing, none of that. I've never heard one single rumor about John Skipper and drug use, not one. And so it was very baffling for a lot of people. But, you know, I mean, look, you'd be, I think most of us would be surprised at what people hide, who we feel like when we look at them, everything is fine. So, um, you know, certainly somebody with his resources, I mean, I guess I, sh- I shouldn't be, you know, that surprised, but it was jarring for a lot of people, especially given that, and this is unique at a company like ESPN that that size, you know, I'd say the majority of people really liked him. You know, a lot of people loved him, in fact. And so for somebody at that position of that high level to be as beloved as he was, it was it was kind of a gut punch for everybody, and of course, I felt a lot of personal empathy and sympathy for his 
situation. I certainly did. I reached out to him um, because I had, you know, parents who were addicted to drugs. And so I know what that's like. Um, and so anyway, I just wanted him to know that uh, I was in his, you know, corner much in the same way he had been in mine um, for all my years at ESPN. I appreciate you going into that. The one thing, and I, you know, I've said this many times, certainly put it on Twitter. I've written columns about it. My, my, me and you could sort of do an entire show on the, the, the suspension, whether you actually violated rules or not, that whatever, that's sort of, um, at, at this point, sort of adjudicated, as they say. The one thing where I think John Skipper and ESPN have to own is when an outside entity even as powerful an outside entity as the White House, Donald Trump, Sarah Sanders, if they come after one of your people, you have to put a statement out there that says that we run our company, Jamel Hill is one of ours, and we're handling this in-house. And that's where I thought they made a really bad mistake is they sort of, they got bullied, but, you know, the NFL's been bullied by Donald Trump. It happens. So um, so I appreciate you going there. One, um, one sort of last follow-up just on this topic, Jamel, and that is um, Jimmy Pitaro is very blunt. Um, about, uh, or I take that back, Robert Iger, the head of Disney, was very blunt about saying that he thought under John Skipper, ESPN um, might have swung the pendulum a little bit too far politically. And so the head of Disney basically came out and he sort of really sort of uh, um, threw Skipper under the bus saying that he believed that ESPN might have gotten too political. So the head of Disney actually bought into a little bit of this narrative. I know you saw that those comments, and I am curious as to what you thought when Iger told that to The Hollywood Reporter. Um, I respectfully disagree. And I guess what I, my follow-up to him would be, what did he think was too political, or what did he think was crossing the line? And I don't mean me. And I don't mean me saying you know things on, on Twitter. I mean actual network coverage, actual shows or, or commentary. Look, maybe I'm biased, and you know, when you work at a place, as long as I worked at ESPN, it's the longest job I've ever had. It's the best job I've ever had. You know, obviously my personal feelings aren't involved. Um, but I never saw us covering anything out of context. And I think that's important. We, we were not making up political stories out of thin air, following the news. The news, yes, we, Colin Kaepernick is one of the biggest sports stories of all time. It's one of the biggest in the last 10 years. We had every journalistic right and expectation to cover that. And I didn't think we sensationalized it in any way. I mean, sure, if you want to argue that, maybe we talked about it too many times, but it was always in the backdrop of something happening that caused the conversation. Uh, so I guess I just don't know what that would have been. I mean, I was struggling to think of examples of where we just launched off politically and did something. And if people want to trace it back, and I don't know if Iger is necessarily doing this, but I know some people have said that the decision to give Caitlyn Jenner the Arthur Ashe Award was the downfall and rise of the ESPN liberalism. And I just ask people to just step back and especially, and I, like, I didn't grow up, I mean, I was, you know, born in the mid-70s. And Bruce Jenner, I mean, I remember, you know, him being the quintessential American hero athlete. If anybody would have told somebody who grew up with Bruce Jenner in the 70s and 80s and when, you know, he was uh, the picture of sports excellence and also of masculinity in America and said, fast 
four to 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 you know two thousand and whatever. And Bruce Jenner is going to be transgendered. Nobody would have believed you. Nobody. It would have. It's one of the most unlikeliest sports, you know, sort of turn that we've ever seen. And given what the rates of suicide are for transgender people, given the way they are physically attacked, they've been brutalized, ostracized. That makes a lot of sense. That's not a political decision. It makes a lot of sense. It's within the context of school, you know? Um, and so I, I just, I find people who say that to be in, just intellectually completely dishonest and just lazy. Like there, there was no rampant political talk on ESPN. You watch the network probably more than I did and I worked there. If there was rampant political talk, I'm sure you interject and say, yes, there was. It was way too much. But I just never saw it, like, out of context. I thought everything was within the scope of the news, which is what I thought we were supposed to do. Yeah, the one thing – here's the thing, and this is where um, – th- this is where, to me, though, sort of the argument lies. And that is when it comes to Twitter, there were high-profile people, including yourself – who were, in my opinion, very political. Now, you can sort of describe political in quotes in terms of, uh, is that politics, is that social justice? But you, you can go down the list of you know 10 to 20 people at ESPN who were very active on social media, particularly Twitter, who were unapologetic and unafraid about putting their um, opinions, mostly progressive opinions, on Twitter. The fact is, that did not cross over to the network in terms of the day-to-day politicalization of ESPN. It's just not the case. Occasionally you do town halls that would talk about the Kaepernick stuff, Martin Luther King's uh, day day programming, which uh, examined the nexus of race and sports. But on a day-to-day level, as someone who watched that network way, way too much, just wasn't the fact. You didn't turn on 12 o'clock, and you guys are talking about Brexit as opposed to, like, you know, RPOs. It just didn't happen. But I do think your network got played— by a lot of opportunists out there who got a lot of page views and a lot of run from knocking ESPN, and ESPN never responded. They never fired back um, either um, with sort of PR statements to counter it or, quite frankly, to even do some dirty PR where you attack the people who are attacking you. Uh, And I thought that really hurt um, your former company. I thought they let a narrative get set, and then once a narrative gets set in the public space, you're done. It's just very hard to change it. Um, although, to ESPN's credit now, um, they've done a good job in the last six months, uh, essentially, um, essentially, I guess, <laughs> I guess, shackling up everybody, Jamel. So it really, uh, um, even on social media, you see very, you know, far less commentary from people, which I think is a shame because I feel like your Twitter account is yours. But I know reasonable people can disagree on that one. Well, I mean, I will, I will say this: that there were a couple things. Um, I think people people misunderstand on purpose um, former President Obama's involvement with ESPN, and they kind of forget. You know, it's it's amazing how because we live in a social media age, how people um, you know forget quickly about uh, other things that have happened that have been very similar. Because I'm old enough to remember when George W. Bush was on ESPN, but <laughs> unfortunately. A lot of people who are conveniently trying to, you know, bang the drum against ESPN just seem to leave that out of the conversation. Now, Mike and Mike, I believe they went to the White House and I feel like 
either pay, play baseball, but they were on the White House house law with George W. Bush. They went to a correspondence dinner or a state dinner, I think it was, at the White House. Um, but, he, he, you know, that was not seen as ESPN being too political. You know, Barack Obama said it several times that ESPN was his escape, which is kind of the irony of this, is that, um, you know, he didn't want to, uh, uh, you know, watch um, – know them discuss him ad nauseum on on you know cable news or news networks so he watched espn quite a bit he our show for example which is how we built a little bit of a relationship you know with him and he loved doing the brackets and so that is just his interest in espn it's not us it was espn making him do this or espn trying to gain some political capital he was naturally interested in doing things with ESPN just as a big, you know, sports fan. And, and look, I know some people will say uh, uh, maybe the decision to do the town hall, um, you know, that ABC did that I ironically won an Emmy for, um, that that I believe aired on ESPN as well. But, you know, sister networks leveraging together is, as you know, very uncommon in network television. And say, oh, that was too political to do, right, I guess, but that was kind of an ABC thing, <laughs> you know. <laughs> so it's just that now um, you know, I just think that people um, who are saying this, it's not because they really want sports to be apolitical. It's because they sometimes, a lot of times, do not the posi- the, the uh, positions that are being presented before them because I, I'm just guessing if Colin Kaepernick were kneeling for domestic violence survivors, um, so many people would not have a problem with him taking a knee and would be calling him anti-patriotic. The fact is that people in this country can't even agree that police brutality is bad, which says something about where that conversation is. All right, we'll get back to our conversation with Jamel Hill in a second. But uh, today's episode of the Sports Media Podcast with Richard Deitch is brought to you by Lightstream. Have you ever looked at your credit card statement and been shocked by the interest rate? Did you know you could actually roll all of your credit card debt into one monthly payment at a lower fixed interest rate? Well, Lightstream offers credit card consolidation loans from 5.89% APR with auto pay lower than the average credit card interest of over 18% APR. You can get a loan from $5,000 to $100,000, and you can even get your funds as soon as the day you apply. Lightstream believes that people with good credit deserve a great interest rate and no fees. And here's a fun fact. Lightstream plants a tree with every loan they fund. Now, my listeners will get a special discount on top of Lightstream's already low rates. The only way to get this discount is to go to lightstream.com slash Richard. So that's L-I-G-H-T-S-T-R-E-A-M dot com slash Richard. Subject to credit approval, rate includes 0.50% auto pay discount. Terms and conditions apply and offers are subject to change without notice. Visit lightstream.com slash Richard. That's lightstream.com slash Richard for more information. All right. Um, let's finish up with uh, uh, one last one. We'll sort of do this quick. Um, do you think, um, how do you think things are going to change under Jimmy Pataro in terms of, um, in terms of, uh, journalism, especially with the NFL, given that it's very, very important for ESPN, or it has been important for ESPN to reset their relationship with the NFL, which it seems like they have done uh, in different facets. But um, 
you know, having worked sort of in the bubble there, do you are you concerned at all that that relationship resetting with the NFL maybe means less journalism on the NFL there? Um, well, I mean, I guess a lot of people were saying that beforehand with the decision uh, for ESPN to sort of end its part and the broader scope of the con- concussion, um, you know, research and reporting that was done uh, with Frontline. Uh, so, you know, that I guess is necessarily a new narrative, if you will. Uh, I, it, I don't know um, exactly how that's going to play out. I mean, certainly, but my relationship with Jimmy Pataro is, is relatively new. Uh, you know, we didn't talk for the, the first time until I think maybe about a month after he was there, partly due, you know, my schedule. I wasn't there when he did his original town hall uh, at ESPN because I was traveling. Uh, but I, you know, made it a point to, I wanted to meet with him because as I him in our first meeting, I think it's fair that the person you're asked about the most probably before you even could get all your things moved into your office that I probably should come meet with you <laughs> at this point. <laughs> um, but, but, uh, you know, I think um, I think that people there are still you know, they're still kind of trying to figure him out a little bit. Those are the indications I've gotten. Everybody I know that has met with him has really liked him. I was very uh, I was very inspired and enthused by his energy, um, his bluntness. I really liked that, and he seemed like a really straight shooter. And so I think people where Skipper, I mean, I know we were for a while, we're just so used to kind of the folksy charm of Skipper and, uh, you know, kind of how personal he would get, like in a way that was, you know, very endearing and charming. And Jimmy's a a little different. Um, And that's not to say he's not personable in his own, in his own way. It's just a different uh, way in which they manage. But just like Skipper, he has an open door policy. Every time I emailed him or talked to him, like responded right away and again, this isn't easy to do when you're the head of, of this kind of major network. So I think he's committed to content. Um, he's obviously equally committed to understandably strengthening those brand and network, um, brand and league rather relationships. And, you know, I guess until I see uh, ESPN either sit on a story or, um, you know, ignore a story, then I think it's fair to wonder if that's the case, but I haven't really seen that. I mean, I, I, I haven't talked to enough NFL reporters to know, like, have they just by, because as the old adage goes, sometimes what's understood need not be, have they just read the tea leaves and been like, you know what, I'm going to be a little less aggressive because when it comes to negative things about the NFL, um, right. because I fear how this may be in the brass, with the brass. I don't, I haven't personally had those conversations. But it was interesting to me um, that, you know, like a lot of people, I saw Josina Anderson's piece with Odell and Little Wayne. And um, I don't know if he can confirm this or whatever, but, I, you know, I obviously saw that they did that uh, or that interview was secured independent of the Giants knowing about it. So if you take that to this conversation we're having about whether or not reporting is being influenced by, you know, ESPN wanting to repair the relationship with the NFL, whatever degree it needed to be repairing, that's not the kind of thing you do. You know what I'm saying? Like that's right. a good indication that they're not allowing their reporting to be influenced by this larger relationship with the NFL. Because as you know, anybody knows the Giants and their ownership. You know that's old school. You know, uh, old school NFL. You know, brass right there, and that's definitely the kind of thing that will tick off an organization and have a trickle effect. 
but they weren't afraid of that. And they still, they got a great interview out of it, made news, a great get for Josina. And so to me, that's an indication that, yes, uh, I know all the different narratives, but reporting seems to still be pretty welcomed at ESPN. Yeah, the question will be how they sort of cover league stuff versus team stuff. But just on a personal note, uh, I really appreciate what Josina Anderson did because this now gives me beautiful cover when I will call a talent or an executive ESPN directly, PR gets mad. And I'm like, Hey, Josina Anderson doesn't, <laughs> doesn't go through PR. Why should I? Um, yeah. all right, let's finish. Let's yeah, exactly. Let's finish up with this. This, uh, I got you for 10 more minutes. Um, why did you decide to go to the Atlantic? What was it about that publication, that offer that you thought would be the right next step? I've loved the Atlantic for a long time. Um, I mean, as you said, I probably uh, had one of the more loosely political feeds <laughs> at at uh, ESPN, my Twitter feed. Um, you know, I tried to learn over time how to skate around certain things. I'll just say that. <laughs> I'm very savvy at uh, trying to avoid certain language or, you know, making jokes as to kind of hide that this was really a political tweet. <laughs> but... Um, no, I, I've been a big fan of the publication. I love a lot of the writers there. It was, you know, a publication I read on a basis, and it just felt like a really good fit, um, an opportunity to kind of do some of the same thing that I was doing at uh, The Undefeated, but do it in a way that was even deeper and more meaningful and, you know, maybe more uncomfortable for some people because, you know, this is – you know, ESPN is in an impossible position. Um, it's hard to be in the business of journalism and and also have financial relationships with the people you're covering. Those are those lead to landmines all over the place a lot of times. And but you know, you know, when you go to ESPN as a journalist, you know what you're signing up for uh, to some degree. So the good sort of the freeing thing is that being at the Atlantic, I don't have to worry about any league partnerships because they don't have any, you know? So, um, you know, there may be other things I have to be concerned about, but I certainly um, will feel even more comfortable in pursuing some topics, um, pursuing some commentary that I think probably would have been a little too, um, just a little too inflammatory maybe for ESPN. So, and I'm speaking directly to an audience that knows what it's getting. If you're, you know, at ESPN and you're doing sports, the ESPN viewer, you know, are rightly so, they're expecting sports, highlights, commentary, analysis on the sport. You don't really come there expecting certain things, even if they are tied to sports. And so I guess I don't have to worry about anybody telling me to stick to sports because I'm at a place that does politics. So it's kind of a role reversal. So that part I'm kind of looking forward to is, uh, um, being at a place that you know kind of embraces that obviously strongly and has a different kind of uh, you know reader than I think I've ever had in my entire career. So, so yeah, it just it came together really fast, and um, I'm just really excited to start. Uh, in fact, today's my first day as, as of the taping of this podcast. So nice, this will be pretty nice. fun. They reached out. Um, they reached out to you. I'm assuming. Yeah, they did, and um, it, it was interesting. A few 
times over the, the last couple of years, they had reached out to me just about doing some one-off pieces, but I never really built a relationship with anybody there. It would just be kind of blind inquiries like, hey, you know, would you ever be interested in freelancing for the Atlantic, which I obviously could being under contract at ESPN and, you know, I would politely decline, but yet the, the writer and journalism there was very proud and humbled that they even asked. And so, um, as the news of my, um, you know, departure spread and became important on, even though I hadn't confirmed, they, you know, made some polite inquiries about just informally getting together to, you know, to talk or it was, you know, we had a breakfast, you know, sort of meeting, just kind of feeling each other out first. And, um, you know, I came away from that breakfast thinking like, wow, I think this is really a place I, I want to be. I mean, I had um, a number of writing offers on the table, uh, which was, um, and for publications that I just absolutely love. But um, this one was the best for me. And it was a real, um, it was just a real, just interesting time because I'd never been that person. I certainly had job offers before, but it was really kind of real to be in a position where you sort of kind of almost have your pick of jobs. And mm. so it, it was um, the equivalent. Of, of first world, you know, problem. So to have, be able to find a fit that was this good was just really remarkable. Do you want to give up any of those other places that offered you a job? You now you know I can't. <laughs> I right. can't give up those other places, but all very respected, you know, publications. All right, we'll do these. We'll do these last ones quick since I know you have to go. Um, you are narrating LeBron James's upcoming documentary series, "Shut Up and Dribble." Um, I think that's coming out. When is that coming out? I should know this. Um, I believe it's uh, first week of November. I feel like it's November 3rd, but, okay. you know, somebody please double check. Yep. Okay. So it's coming out uh, later this year. Um, as you know, Jamel, because you talked to them, Deadspin wrote a piece um, pretty critical of you about the conflict of interest of having financial ties and a relationship to NBA players, and that's not just this documentary, but your production company where you're um, doing some stuff with Gabrielle Union, uh, the actress, also the wife of Dwayne Wade. So the question is, how do you, um, you know, how do you address what I think people would consider, at least in the journalism world, a conflict of interest given the finances involved? Yeah, as I told Destin, and um, you know, you know enough to know that how seriously I take journalism. So I'm aware, you know, I know what a conflict looks like. And um, I think that's part of it is there is sort of a new um, way of doing things now that was not really the case for much of my career. And some of it too is also realizing I'm all, I'm in a bit of a unique state um, or a unique space. Um, I am a journalist by trade. It's what I've done for 21 years. I'm obviously working for a journalistic publication in the Atlantic. However, there's a whole, it's like my career is, is almost in compartments to some degree because I am also a content creator and production company was something that I started last August. But much like I told um, Despin, um, so the thing is the LeBron documentary, that was, that came into play before the Atlantic. And originally, um, I was in the shut up and dribble as 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 a head, as a commentator. And the focus of the documentary, when I was interviewed um, by Gotham Chopra, was about 
just basketball as, um, you know, it, how it's evolved. It was a much broader project, and it was sort of taking you through the decades of basketball and, and things happened, and, um, you know, so it was it was different. And then Laura Ingraham says what she says, and it kind of changed the focus of it. And so uh, I guess because of, you know, where I had been in the crosshairs and just sort of the type of the type of I wrote about, um, you know, Gotham came to me um, and asked if I would consider being a narrator for the entire film. And I was very honored to do so. And, um, you know, said, yeah, sure. The Atlantic wasn't even on the radar. It wasn't even in the picture at all. So, you know, I gave my commitment to them to do it. And at that point, you know, I really, I wasn't, I had no, you know, no jobs or anything I was thinking about. So I couldn't even see it down the pipeline. Um, So, yeah, I mean, I gave my commitment to do it. And, you know, I think what also, I don't know if it was made clear in the death pen piece, it's like LeBron is not paying me any money. (laughs) <laughs> okay, but um, this is a Showtime, you know, Gotham Troper sort of deal, if you will. So, like, I don't look get a check from them and it says LeBron James on it or, you know, Spring Hill, which is his, which is his um, you know, his production uh, arm. So, um, so, yeah, so I think the timeline of that definitely matters. Now, you know, that is, I guess, a little trickier is the fact that because I am also operating as co-founder of a production company, there are um, projects that I have that Spring Hill is kind of suited for. And so it's not a direct necessarily relationship. Where again, as LeBron is cutting me checks or anything like that, or LeBron is, is sitting down and I'm pitching things to him necessarily, although, you know, I have uh, you know, pitched and discussed some things with um, his, his longtime friend and, and partner, Maverick Carter, um, you know, that's another kind of side and facet to my career. But as I've, you know, discussed with The Atlantic, and I was very upfront with them about this relationship, um, you know, as we continue to uh, talk more seriously about how we could um, align together and me working for them. And so they're very aware. And so either a couple things will happen um, if they think I'm compromised and they ask me, you know, Hey, it's probably better just from a optic standpoint. If you don't write about LeBron, all right, well, we'll discuss that. And I would understand their position or I'll write about LeBron and there'll be a big old paragraph in there that says, by the way, just so you know, the relationship is between me and LeBron. I mean, LeBron and I are friends. Um, We have a mutual respect for each other. I mean, you know, but we're not like hanging out or anything. <laughs> so I don't want I don't want people to I don't want people to bloat the relationship necessarily. And I'm I'm sure he'd say say the same, you know, uh, that we have a very good professional relationship. So that's kind of what it is. Uh, but this is uh, a different age, as I said, and I mentioned in the Deadspin piece. Uh, you know, Hannah Storm started a production company a while ago. Um, she did a documentary with Danica Patrick, um, a very good one. And, um, you know, they obviously have a bit of a business relationship. I think a lot of times, a lot these days, what I have, you know, especially as more athletes have their own production company, Steph Curry has one, Kevin Durant has one, LeBron has one. Um, more and more of them are doing this. And a lot of the content buyers, 
they see an opportunity to pair authenticity with credibility. So if you have an athlete that has a particular project and they want that project to have credibility, have in many cases or some cases at least some journalists, they're thinking these you know companies are thinking, well, go out and pair this person with a journalist and let's see what happens. And, you know, I mean, I guess we can all just, on a case-by-case basis, does that compromise journalism or does it give us the opportunity to, um, through access, tell a broader, more multidimensional story? I didn't say a story, but just a complete story. I, uh, I appreciate answering that, and it's probably a longer conversation uh, that we can have um, just on that topic uh, uh uh, alone. Final two here. Um, I think I read this, Jamel. Are you starting a podcast or is that, are there plans in place for that to eventually happen? And if so, what would be the content? What would be the sort of the, um, you know, what would be your hope behind that in terms of, of, a, of a new podcast? Yeah. Um, a podcast is at this point a strong possibility. Um, you know, have conversations with some people, sorting through things, um, you know, figuring out what makes the most sense. And, you know, I would say, it, uh, I think um, how I described it to, to Jim Miller is, is still pretty applic- applicable. Um, sports-ish, but not sports. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, you know, um, I think sports is still an amazing lens in which we can talk about wider societal and political issues. And, um, you know, I want to continue that. It's also a great lens, you know, into, into pop culture. So I think it's going to be um, kind of a, a little bit about sports, but also touch on, you know, social, political, and, and pop culture topics. You should basically just put out there, Jamel, just freak people out and say you're doing like a gardening podcast or just something people would not <laughs> uh, expect. Yeah, exactly. They probably would um, at this I mean, they probably wouldn't believe me, I guess. And it, it, no, it's just been, in general, it's just been kind of funny seeing, you know, people kind of um, conjecture about what I'll be doing next. And I always knew that the thing that people would think I would be doing was not the thing I'd probably be doing. <laughs> I think they all expected <laughs> up on MSNBC or CNN right right away. <laughs> yeah, 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 I always read that. Um, uh, all right, last one here. Uh, and again, I appreciate it. I know you're sort of running late, so you can do this quick because I know you got to go. But um, I do want to ask you, uh, as I mentioned earlier, about the undefeated, because um, you've been at ESPN to see uh, Grantland fold after, you know, sort of pledged support for it. 538's been sold. The undefeated was very, very much a John Skipper um, objective, and it was something that was really, really important to him. We saw that it struggled to sort of get going until they finally hired Kevin Merida, who took it to fruition. And now with Skipper gone, um, and a lot of people, and as I've written about, a lot of people at that place have left, including friends of yours. Um, I understand there, you know, some of it is sort of just people got better jobs, et cetera, but they have lost a ton of high-profile and talented people over the last couple of months. As someone who's very, very close to that publication, I mean, is it going to? You think it'll be with us in two years? What is what is your thought about ESPN's commitment to the undefeated? Um, I think that commitment is there. Uh, I think that, um, you know, even though, as you pointed out, it was something that was, you know, Skipper's 
uh, pet park project, but I think there's still a lot of people um, that are invested and want to see it, it, it succeed. Um, you know, my question, though, is in that success, you know, what does success look like uh, for the undefeated if you're ESPN? Uh, because, you know, as anybody knows who's ever started any project, and I'm sure as the Grantland folks will tell you, to some degree, you can't get into starting something like the undefeated or even a, a ESPNW or Grantland. You can't get into that thinking it's going to be some huge moneymaker, that it's more there, um, you know, obviously for credibility, for content, um, for providing something that's just not in the media space. And so, um, you know, what is the ultimate measure is like, what does that mean for ESPN? Is there a certain benchmark that they would consider this uh, to be a success? Because I think the end of a success in many ways. So by that measure, what is ESPN willing to do to, um, in terms of resources, so it can be a success? And I think, you know, and um, what sort of, uh, you know, the next step for the undefeated is figuring out um, how to really lock in, you know, more support. Um, and not just from a, 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 a staffing standpoint, but even a money standpoint, the challenge for ESPN is how to fold the undefeated into everything ESPN does in a way that amplifies the great work that they already do and continues to, um, you know, kind of show that they are commitment to their, their commitment to, um, to culture and to telling those kind of stories. And that was always, you know, when I was there, and even though I wasn't there very long, and there, you know, people probably could, you know, speak to it better than I could. That to me was always kind of the the, the, the awkwardness, I guess, of, of the undefeated. You know, Justin Chesley, I think, is a great writer. Kelly Carter is a great writer. How do you feature more of their pieces in the wider ESPN ecosystem? How do you get right. Justin Chesley on SportsCenter? So, and I think, you know, that's sort of the challenge that ESPN has got to embrace and got to commit to solving. You know, does the undefeated need its own TV space, um, its own space on ESPN Plus? How can the ESPN machine better amplify this site? And um, I don't know that they figured that part out yet. I think it's still kind of a work in progress, and you know, they're trying to figure it out in, in, in real in real time. I mean, I think a lot of the undefeated TV specials has been great. I mean, it's been great. I did you know the one in Chicago about you know gun violence. Those are great things. Where does it belong at ESPN? You know, I mean, and I think that's always been the challenge for the company itself is that how do you become, how can you be everything to everybody? You know, and it's, um, so I, I think the commitment is there. I hope the execution is just as high. Jamel Hill has uh, a new job. She's at the Atlantic, where you can read her work there. She has her production company, and you'll be seeing some stuff from her and Kelly Carter. Uh, we mentioned the project that she's doing with LeBron. You could check her out there. She's going to have a podcast coming, which uh, I have no doubt will be excellent. Uh, Jamel, we've known each other for a long time, and um, this is something I've said in print. I've said on this podcast. Uh, you're always an honest broker with me, and I really appreciate that. Um, you know, you speak your truth, and that's something I respect. Um, I would hope even people who don't particularly like you respect that. I, I imagine they don't, but but that is something I really, really respect. And um, 
and I have great admiration for um, for your career. Um, that means right now, Jamel, that I've just gotten people cheering and booing me, which is fine <laughs> on my part. But in all honesty, uh, I, I wish you uh, I wish you the best of success at the Atlantic, and I, I think it's really going to be a good place for you. And um, and thanks for giving me seventy plus minutes today. I, I know your time is valuable, so I really appreciate that. Okay, well, thanks a lot, and as always, I I've appreciated so many of the conversations that we've had over the um, years. And um, yeah, I mean, you know, look, one of these days, you know, I'll get my own podcast. I'm gonna have to put you on, you know, on the grill here a little bit. <laughs> Jamel, I, I'm happy to do it, but you have you're gonna have a high profile podcast, and as my producer Lou Pellegrino can tell you, it's about downloads. You don't go for me, a D guest. You go for the A guest. I'm a guest for you like four <laughs> years four, four years down the road when you have like a guest host coming in to uh, do that podcast. But I appreciate that all the same. All right, Jamel Hill, everyone. Thanks, Jamel. All right, thank you. Appreciate it. All right, back in the studio. My thanks to Jamel Hill for giving us a lot of time today. I appreciate her candor for sure. And, uh, and she'll be at the Atlantic, and no doubt you'll be hearing from her in the future. Uh, previous podcast guests over the last couple of weeks have included Chris Haynes of Yahoo Sports, Renee Young, now uh, calling WWE Raw, Adam Schefter, Chinea Ogumake, Rebecca Lowe, the uh, fantastic NBC Sports soccer host, Frank Isola, Brett McMurphy, Adnan Burke, Carissa Thompson. Please go to the Sports Media Podcast with Richard Deitch. Go to Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Google Play. Check out the uh, past episodes. And if you like it, please uh, subscribe and leave us a review. We appreciate it. We appreciate it, and that is the way things continue. All right, for Lou Pellegrino, this is Richard Deitch. We'll see you again on the Sports Media Podcast.